a small region in, in what we would call Turkey today. Um, that's where the, the Gelts lived, who were the original Galatians. But by Roman times, uh, this had become uh, a wider region, the, the, the province of Galatia. And so you'll see on um, the map that I've got there that the province of Galatia extends all the way up through uh, the centre of modern Turkey. Well, the Romans tended to do this thing. Um, the province of Syria actually included Palestine and uh, Lebanon and a whole lot of countries today that, that are separate. And likewise, the province of Galatia included uh, Phrygia, Lycaonia, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derbe. The interesting thing is that those towns, which are on the southern part of that uh, little map, those towns were the ones that Paul visited in Acts 13 to 14. The only time Paul actually mentions going to the region of Galatia is in Acts 18.23, and that's the northern region uh, where there's very little evidence that he had any work. So it seems most likely that he was dealing with this southern region and that this uh, letter was written pretty soon after his first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. In fact, I believe that Galatians is the oldest letter in the New Testament. In fact, it would be the oldest, the first New Testament document that we have, because the, the epistles were written before the Gospels. Uh, so it's a very early epistle. Now, again, there's been debate about where, when it might have been written and where it might have been written. Uh, there's quite a number of scholars who believe that it was written in Antioch, that is uh, Syrian Antioch, in the period uh, Acts 1427 to 15:4 before the Jerusalem Council. I should point out to you that there are different Antiochs. It's very confusing, I know. But um, there's Antioch in Syria, uh, you know where that is, just above Palestine, and then there's Antioch in Pisidia, which is in Galatia. So you've always got to mention which particular Antioch you're talking about. So the argument is it was written in Syrian Antioch uh, before the Jerusalem Council, which is mentioned in Acts 15, uh, very soon after Paul's uh, missionary journey. might be good if we just turn back to Acts chapter 15. At the beginning of Acts chapter 15, you get uh, an interesting notice of something happening that uh, is relevant to Galatians. Beginning of Acts 15, Paul's got back to his home church in Antioch in Syria, and it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said that Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So you see, that's something that's going on in Syria and it seems like that sort of influence then spread up into Turkey, up into the Galatian region pretty soon so that Paul had to deal with it uh, before it destroyed the churches that he had founded up there in the Galatian region. So Acts 15 uh, is uh, roughly the time uh, when Galatians was written. Other people have argued that um, 
Galatians may have been written after the Jerusalem Council. I myself don't think that that fits for a reason I'm going to explain to you in a moment. And then um, some people take it even later, but I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think we can date this really early uh, before the Jerusalem Council, uh, before Paul goes up there to have that debate which is recorded in Acts 15. Now much depends on how we date the autobiographical material in Galatians 1 and 2. Let's go back to Galatians again and remind ourselves of the journeys to Jerusalem that Paul talks about. Um, In uh, Galatians chapter 1 he says in verse 17 I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who are apostles but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas and stayed with him for 15 days and so on. So that's the first journey three years after he was converted. The next journey is mentioned in chapter 2. After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. This time I took Barnabas and that was when there was the big debate with the apostles about um, the gospel and the fields of mission. So how do we uh, line up these uh, visits with um, the book of Acts? Well, in the book of Acts, if we go, let's go back to Acts, and we keep our fingers in the place on Galatians. In the book of Acts, um, the first time that Paul goes up to uh, Jerusalem uh, is mentioned in um, Acts chapter nine, when he gets converted, and um, he first of all has a, a ministry in uh, Damascus, and uh, then uh, he goes up to Jerusalem, and. Uh, You'll find that in verse chapter, chapter 9, verse 26. Uh, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul had been converted and so on. So that's the first visit recorded in Acts. The second visit to Jerusalem recorded in Acts is at the end of chapter 11. And uh, when um, the church is founded um, in Antioch in Syria, Barnabas calls upon Saul to come and help him in the ministry. Uh, He goes to Tarsus and brings him back down to Antioch and there's uh, Saul and Barnabas ministering there um, and teaching the gospel and um, one of the prophets, Agabus, foretells that there's going to be a famine and uh, that that they ought to be helping their fellow Christians and so it says in verse 29, the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so the first visit is just getting to know you kind of visit for a few people. The second visit is what's called the famine relief visit and the third visit to Jerusalem recorded in uh, Acts is in chapter 15. We've just read that previously. That's where Paul and Barnabas go up to, to the Jerusalem council. Okay, now if we sort of line those up next to Galatians, um, we, we realise that the most logical thing is that the first visit um, to Jerusalem corresponds uh, with Acts chapter 9 and the second visit which is the one mentioned in Acts chapter 2 actually corresponds with the famine relief visit and there's no mention of the council because it happened, hasn't happened yet. Uh, the, the Galatians is written before the Jerusalem council. Now there's been debates about this issue because the, the way in which the story is told in Acts doesn't, um, doesn't line up in, in great detail with, with the uh, story in Galatians. 
And this is not surprising because um, Luke has his own particular agenda, the way he tells the story and the incidents he records, and, and Paul's got another uh, agenda. And uh, so I don't think it's impossible to line up the, um, the facts. I don't think it's impossible to line up the journeys. Um, for example, I'll just give you this one little uh, pointer, and if anyone wants to raise this issue later on, they can. But if you look at Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 2, when Paul goes up there, from his point of view, the main uh, purpose of it is to talk to the apostles about his gospel and his uh, field of ministry. But according to Acts chapter 11, the main reason for going up there was to, to give the famine relief. Okay, well these two things can work together. And there's a, there's a very important, there are two important clues in Galatians too, which, which I think, which, which sort of solves the problem. First of all, in Galatians 2 verse 2, Paul says, I went up in response to a revelation. What revelation was that? It was Agabus, the prophet, saying there's going to be a famine and you ought to help the Christians out in Jerusalem. That's the revelation that he refers to. And then at the end of this little incident, in Acts chapter 2 verse 10, they say, please continue to remember the poor. And he says, well that's the very thing that I was there for. That's, of course that's what I wanted to do. And it was keep on remembering the poor. In other words, thank you for your help so far, please keep it up. So I think there are two very important clues in Acts chapter 2 that uh, line up with, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 2 that line up with Acts chapter 11. If all that's very complicated for you, just don't worry about it. The point is, I think that Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council and that therefore it was written round about 48 AD uh, and if that's the case, it's probably the earliest New Testament document that we have uh, in existence. Now let's go across to the back page, to um, not the back page, page 3, I'm sorry, and look at the occasion and purpose of this letter. Now the traditional approach, which I have been sort of hinting at, is that um, Paul writes to oppose the influence in the Galatian churches of Jewish Christian Judaizers from Jerusalem who saw Christianity as a modified form of Judaism. Now a Judaizer is someone who's trying to make people become Jews. And here you've got these Jewish Christians, these are, Christ, these are converted Jews who are still worrying about the law of Moses. And you can understand that, can't you? and say, well, we can't just abandon it. We can't just throw it away as if it's not relevant anymore. And, and we've got to get these Gentiles to accept the law of Moses because this is the word of God. <laughs> and, and so they need it. And, and they're very confused about this issue. And so they press upon the, the Gentile Christians the need to adopt the law and to keep the law of Moses. Now, in the small print there, the majority of those whom Paul addresses are converts from heathenism. It's pretty clear from the way he addresses them, uh, particularly in chapter 4, verse 8. And when he, when he preached the gospel, he made no demands on them in terms of circumcision, keeping the law of Moses. That's how they became Christians, with no strings attached. Since Paul was with the Galatians, a group of Judaizers has infiltrated their churches and taught that circumcision and law-keeping are necessary for salvation. The Judaizers who necessitated the Jerusalem Council were claiming to represent the Jerusalem Apostles, Acts 15 verse 24, and the same seems to be true of those troubling the Galatians. 
now you can begin to see why Paul had to defend his apostleship. These people have come down to Jerusalem and said, look, this is what the apostles in Jerusalem say you should be doing. You've got to keep the law. And Paul's saying, no, that's not right. You don't have to keep the law. Well, who's Paul? He wasn't one of the original twelve. I think I'll go with Peter, James and John, thank you. And this, of course, is a misrepresentation of the twelve, which is what Paul is trying to say. That the twelve don't have a different gospel. That's, that's, that's a mistake. That's, that's a distortion. But that's the conclusion that the Judaizers are trying to push. You should go with the Jerusalem crowd, not with this Paul who's a bit of a suspect. So Paul's status and authority as an apostle uh, becomes a big issue uh, as people compare him unfavourably with the Jerusalem apostles. And uh, in short, little point E, Paul wrote to warn the Galatians about the serious consequences of turning to a different message, putting themselves back into a form of spiritual slavery and missing out on the freedom to serve God made possible through the Gospel and the Holy Spirit. Now there have been lots of different theories about Galatians uh, but more recently there have been some modifications of the traditional uh, approach which I think have both got some good, good points to add to our understanding uh, but I'm not going along with everything that they say. So I think one of the things that I've recently come to realise is the importance of chapter 3 uh, verses 1 to 3. When, when Paul talks about his original engagement with them, he makes it clear that he preached Christ crucified and that's the only way to become a Christian is to believe and trust in the crucified Jesus so that you can say like Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I live now in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. That's a wonderful creed, isn't it? We should say that, we should put that into our prayer book actually. It's a good creed for Sunday, uh, what it really means to be a Christian. So that's, that's the heart of it, isn't it? But then he says to them, having begun with the Spirit, through the Gospel, through belief, how are you going to end the Christian life? Are you going to end it through the flesh, by doing your own thing? Are you going to end the Christian life with the, with the, with the Word, with the, with, the, uh, with the Law? Surely not. Having begun with the Spirit, are you not going to end with the Spirit? Having begun with the Gospel, are you not going to end with the Gospel? You've got to keep going as it was in the beginning. It's got to last to the end. Now I think that that uh, therefore is a question, you might say, it's not just a question about justification, it's a question about sanctification. Not just how you become a Christian, but how you remain a Christian, how you grow as a Christian, how you manifest holiness, how do you make progress in the Christian life, where do we go next? Is it by keeping rules and regulations? Is it by going back to the law of Moses? Or is it walking in the Spirit? So I think that uh, that's an, a very helpful perspective. And the more I've been studying Galatians in recent years, the more I've realised the importance of the Holy Spirit. I, I never thought that the Holy Spirit was a very important topic in Galatians, which is a bit silly, until I counted up the number of references and then I went through and looked at what they're teaching. And suddenly I thought, yes, of course, this is a massive topic that Paul is bringing in here alongside the very important fundamental teaching about the cross. So more about that in, in a moment. So just to go back to this um, further um, promotion of, of uh, the traditional approach, uh, little point B, circumcision was the natural correlate and climax of any Judaizing process for most Jews. It was the way that Gentiles could upgrade from being God-fearers to proselytes. 
So the issue is essentially one of status and identity as the true children of God rather than just personal salvation and freedom. Here's the point. You can make people feel very inadequate if they don't feel part of the group. You know, if, you, if somebody kept coming to St Matthew's uh, for a couple of weeks and, and uh, you, you were talking to them and said, oh yes, but you're not a real member of St Matthew's. I mean, you've got to do this, that and the other because before you'll really be counted as a member of St Matthew's, that would really alienate them, wouldn't it? They feel that they, they don't have the right status because they haven't done certain things. So if you start telling people that they're not really true members of the covenant of Abraham, they're not really true members of the new covenant, the recipients of God's blessings, unless they do certain things, it affects their, their self-identity and their status. And that's an important thing. Who am I before God? Who are we together before God? So I think the new focus in Galatians has been much more on that side of things and on the fact that we are Christians together. We're all one in Christ Jesus, which is where the epistle ends, isn't it? The, the idea of loving one another and caring for one another is, is the sort of final note of the, of the epistle. So anyway, I'm not going to um, explore those um, things with any great uh, detail unless you want to uh, pick me up on those later on. Just in the time we've got left, I'd now like to turn to the um, important themes in Galatians which uh, you'll find on the, on the back sheet. And in a sense this is just revisiting some of the things we've already said but it's a, it's a way of highlighting some of the important issues as far as Paul is concerned. He really thinks it's important that all his converts, all his readers should understand his authority to address them as he does. It's interesting that Romans begins in the same way. And Paul is writing to the Romans. He's never met a lot of them and he's about to visit them. And in order to um, get them to listen to him, he has to, in the opening verses of Romans, draw attention to his calling and his authority as an apostle of Christ. And it must have been a, quite a, an unusual thing in the first century that you had Jesus and his apostles and this persecuting Jew suddenly becoming a Christian and, and apparently setting himself up as an apostle, the 13th apostle. Who is this guy? What is his authority? He seems to be saying something different. Do we go with him? That, those, were the, those were the issues. So um, for Paul, it's really important to establish his own independent authority but also his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles and uh, the way in which God uh, called him to uh, work with them. Uh, in the process, of course, he doesn't hesitate to say uh, that he stood up against Peter and Barnabas. And you can imagine that that incident would have gone round like wildfire. And people would have told that story about Paul standing up against Peter and Barnabas. And why did he do it? It must have been quite a famous story that everybody needed to have straight in their, in their minds. Now, the other thing that I think um, comes out of this um, whole context is Paul's relationship with the Galatians. When, it, when the letter starts off, it sounds very abrupt. You, you, may, you know that it, mostly in Paul's letters he says, I thank God for you for this, that and the other, and I pray for you, this, that and the other. But in this one, after he's introduced himself, he gets straight into, I'm astonished about you guys that you've so quickly abandoned Christ and the Gospel. It doesn't sound very friendly to start with. And as the letter gets on, he says, you foolish Galatians. But... By the time you get to chapter 4, you realise he's got a very um, loving, caring, compassionate uh, attitude towards 
uh, the Galatians. Uh, let's just, um, just go through to chapter 4 um, and uh, verse 19. Wonderful, wonderful little uh, words here. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am completely perplexed about you. Now not only is that a loving, caring statement, uh, but it's also very interesting theologically, isn't it? That Paul was the one who gave birth to them through the Gospel. And what he wants to see more than any, anything else is Christ being formed in them. Now if you're, if you're a parent, you know that you have this great desire for your children to grow up, to know Christ, to love Christ, to manifest Christ in their lives. Well, Paul had that for all the Galatians. He had that fatherly, compassionate concern for all the Galatians. And he knew that if they got sidetracked by this false teaching, Christ would not be formed in them. They'd be unformed Christians, you see, immature Christians. But if Christ is truly formed in them, then they're going to be manifesting the characteristics of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit. Now that is the heart of Paul's concerns. My dear children, I've given birth to you. I want you to be fully formed in Christ. And I think that that is, uh, in one sense, that's the heart of it all. That's really what Gal- That's why he's writing. That's why he's so passionate. And, uh, and that's a wonderful um, message to us, I think, about uh, Christian ministry and uh, Paul's, the way in which Paul uh, expressed that ministry. Okay, the nature of Paul's Gospel. We know, of course, that uh, the Gospel is very much focused on the death and resurrection of Christ and there are certain key points in the letter where that comes through. Interestingly, right at the beginning, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And there, in a little nutshell, is um, an expression of the Gospel. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He didn't just die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He died so that we could be liberated from the world, the flesh and the devil, so that we could be set free to have Christ formed in us, to be different people. And that kind of next stage of experiencing the liberation that there is in Christ that Galatians has much to say about. And that's Paul's Gospel. Um, As he goes on, of course, he talks about the fact that justification is by faith, not by works of the law. And I've always thought that Galatians 2.21 is one of the best verses in the New Testament uh, for just putting this so clearly. If if I put it... uh, Well, let me just read it from the NIV. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I've often found, uh, talking to people who have such a preoccupation with good works, I've found that the logic of that verse is a really important one to press home on them. You really think you need to do good works to be saved. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus died for nothing. If you could get there by your own efforts, uh, then Jesus really, his death was completely unnecessary. And that is the logic of Paul's argument at this point, that uh, we need the cross and there's nothing else we can add to it, uh, there's nothing that needs to be added to it in order to be saved. 
But of course, from Paul's point of view, the, what they're trying to add is the works of the law. They're trying to add on things that have to do with the Mosaic law. And so this is a big deal. This is a big issue for um, the first century. As they try and work out, what are we supposed to do with the Mosaic law? Where does it fit into the scheme of things? Are we still meant to keep it? Um, do we still learn from it? Do we still have to obey it in any sense? And there's a sense in which Christians have been wrestling with this, this problem uh, ever since. It came back up at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. It's certainly back on the agenda today with a lot of uh, theological discussion. What is the place of the law in the life of the Christian? And Paul really is saying here, I died to the law. Um, I'm finished with the law in the sense that the penalties have been paid for all my sins committed under the law, but now I'm no longer under obligation to keep the law as the law. Why is this so? It's because of God's original covenant promise, which is to bless the nations. And God doesn't want to bless the nations by making them into Jews. God wants to bless the nations through faith in Christ. That's what he said to Abraham. Therefore we have to see the law as a stage in salvation history, a, a brilliant gift of God to Israel, that Israel might be a different people, a holy people, but a limited um, gift. You remember in, in chapter 3 Paul talks about um, the, the law being like, um, what's the expression that's used here? Because um, it's translated differently in different versions. Uh, yes, chapter 3 verse uh, 23. Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul doesn't mean that people didn't have faith in the Old Testament, but he's characterising the new age, the gospel age, as the age of faith in contrast with the former age, which is the age of obedience to the law. And he's saying that was a temporary time, almost like being in school uh, with, with a guardian, um, but now we're free, we're free, free from that to be adult, mature believers in Christ without the law. Having said that, um, and we could go on talking about this for a long time, there are many ways in which Paul draws on the theology of the law and talks about the law being fulfilled in Christians through the Holy Spirit. And of course the, the classic example of that is where he talks in chapter 5 about the commandment uh, to love being fulfilled uh, in, in your neighbour. But just w how, what we do with the law as Christians is a big, a wider topic uh, than even Galatians uh, addresses at the moment. Now um, what, what we've really been saying is that the fundamental issue is the covenant of God, the Abrahamic covenant and the promises uh, that God made which have been fulfilled in Christ and for those who believe in Christ. And so what, he's, what he ends up saying in chapter 6 is that all this is life transforming. See, I, I, I think sometimes as Christians, particularly as evangelical Christians, we, we get ourselves into a bit of a trap of thinking that, that, that what really matters is just getting people to become Christians, getting them to believe the gospel, trust in Christ. And then we give them a little course about, you know, just for starters or something, how to pray and read the Bible and, and so on. But actually what the New Testament writers are concerned about is how people grow and mature in Christ and how Christ becomes formed in us. And that's the big concern of Galatians, how we, we don't lose 
sight of the, uh, our starting point and we, we never get away from our starting point. We move down the track, we keep going in the gospel track empowered by the Holy Spirit to live it out and experience more and more of what it means to be in Christ and to manifest uh, the holiness that God uh, wants to see in all his people. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where Galatians um, uh, really ends. Let's just have a look at chapter 6 um, and verse um, 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. You see, what counts is being part of God's new creation and seeing the effects of that in your own life. That's the real deal. And that comes from never losing sight of Christ crucified and of God's purpose to liberate you from the world. Now you see, Galatians ends where it begins. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, he talked about Christ rescuing us from the present evil age. And in chapter 6, uh, verse 18, he talks about... Uh, six, chapter 6, 14 and 15, he talks about um, Christ liberating us from the world. And cr- the world is crucified to me and I to the world and so on. So there's a kind of a big inclusion between chapter 1, verse 4 and 6, 14, 15. All right, that leads me to the final point, which is to talk about the spirit and freedom to please God because the life-transforming effect of the gospel has to do with the release of the spirit into our lives. The Christian life begins and ends by means of the spirit. Uh, As you know, Jesus talks about being born again of the Holy Spirit and Paul alludes to that in chapter 3, no, chapter 4, in that... uh, strange allegory of Hagar and Sarah in chapter 4 verse 29 he says at that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit it is the same now Uh, there he's talking about the fact that you've got Jews who are simply preoccupied with fleshly matters persecuting Christians who are born of the spirit so the Christian life begins with the Holy Spirit enabling you to believe the gospel and to trust in Christ The Spirit is given to all who believe the Gospel. The sign that we've got the Holy Spirit is that we can call God Father. Chapter 4 and verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. When Jesus prayed... He, he used the word Abba, which is Aramaic for my father. And that was a very intimate form of prayer which reflected the intimate relationship that Jesus had uh, with the father. Now he invited his own disciples to pray our father. And the early Christians were so taken with this that they preserved the actual Aramaic word, even in a Greek context, they used this word Abba because it was so precious. This is the Jesus word. This is the word that describes the intimacy that Jesus makes possible through the Spirit. So when the Spirit enables you to call God dear Father, then that is a sign that you're one of God's true children. Uh, It's not just the magic words that you say, but it's the relationship. If you're aware of God as being your loving Father, 
that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is, is at work in your life and that you are a true child of God, set free from slavery. So, what are we supposed to make of all this? Well, Paul goes and, and makes an amazing conclusion that the Spirit is the ultimate blessing promised to Abraham and his offspring, enabling Jews and Gentiles to be united in Christ as children of God. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 14, first of all he talks about Christ being redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, that's 3.13. And then he says, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now it doesn't say anything about that in the book of Genesis. Uh, it simply says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it's certainly clear from the book of Genesis that God wants all the nations to come and share in Abraham's faith and the blessing promised to Abraham. But what is that, Paul says? In the end, what is the blessing promised to Abraham? In the end, it is the gift of the Spirit because it's the gift of the Spirit that empowers believers to be Christ-like and to be set free from the world, the flesh and the devil and to be, have Christ formed in them, you see? That's, that's elevating the Spirit to a very important level, isn't it? To say that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit which is the blessing promised to, to the nations through Abraham. But the Spirit is not just... Um, making us individually Christians and, and working in us individually. Uh, as Paul makes very clear in the end of chapter 3, uh, if we are children of God, we're children of God together. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, all one in Christ Jesus. And so that, this means that his whole theology of the church, which is not really articulated very much in Galatians, but certainly is in 1 Corinthians, let's say, in Ephesians and Romans, it's all based on the, the Spirit working in us together to make us collectively, corporately, um, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's holy people. So there's, there's an awful, awful lot that flows from this uh, teaching about the Spirit. Uh, true freedom is found in walking by the Spirit and not gratifying the flesh. And of course walking by the Spirit means seeking for the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control and all the rest. Seeking to replace the the evil works of the flesh with um, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul goes on to give um, lots of uh, guidance here and in chapter 6 about what it means to, to do that, uh, including carrying each other's burdens and in this way fulfilling the law of Christ, which is the law of love. So to conclude, the Spirit enables believers to fulfil the law and walk in love as they eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Let me just say something about chapter 5, verse 5 and then we'll have some questions. So in chapter 5, and uh, we thought we read through this before, um, you've got this sort of climactic verse. Chapter 5, verse 5, Through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. One of the Spirit's tasks is to keep us hoping to keep us fixed on the future, not to lose our perspective of where we're going. We've received so much through Christ and the Gospel, but this is not all there is. You know, There is the hope of eternal life, of resurrection with Christ. But what about this righteousness that he's talking about? Ultimately what he's saying is 
that when we see Christ we will experience the fullness of justification. We will, we will be acquitted in God's presence. We will be vindicated. And the righteousness of God, the, the characteristics of Christ will be fully formed in us so that we, we keep on keeping on uh, because we have this vision that God has for us which is to change us, to form Christ in us that we might ultimately experience uh, the fullness of his righteousness when we stand in his presence. So in a very short letter, uh, Paul has managed to cram in uh, a lot of theology and if it's true that this is one of his earliest letters then you can see him uh, developing these things, particularly in Romans which is you know, so much bigger uh, but, but all his uh, basic theological ideas are, are here and they, can, they get teased out in, in the other letters. So, let's have some questions after, after all that. David had his hand up first. I'm going to come down so I can see you. All this business about circumcision, which is mentioned an awful lot, yeah. seems to leave out 50% of the um, potential candidates for Christianity, which is, of course, women. Yeah. Where, does this, where does this apply to them? Okay, well, first of all, um, in the book of Genesis, um, in chapter 17, when circumcision is introduced, it's very clear there that it, obviously it only applies to the males, the, the, the parents and the children, um, and that the wife and the, the, the daughters get caught up in the covenant because the husband or the, the, the sons have been circumcised. So, um, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, um, and normally people uh, in the ancient world operated in families, then the head of the household, all the males in the household would be circumcised, um, they would um, offer sacrifice as a family and then they would undertake to keep the whole law and uh, the women um, would uh, obviously be caught up in that, um, in that event. So it's a patriarchal society where um, what, what happens to the men uh, determines what happens to the women. But Paul is saying, it's all over. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the novelty of Christianity. Uh, but in the first century, Paul says, that's all over now because we're all one in Christ Jesus, male and female, circumcised and uncircumcised. So that, that distinction, which was for a time, no longer, no longer applies. Okay, I've got one over here, David. I think a, I think a pretty easy one, David. Um, if you had the opportunity today to, to ask um, Paul about a concept in, in Galatians, uh, one you would like explained further, what would that be? Oh. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't answer that off the top of my head in the sense that um, I don't think there's anything particularly in Galatians that at the moment that's troubling me, but there are things in Romans I could mention. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out about Romans 7, who is speaking about... Um, I'd like to be sure that he is speaking about the Christian in the second part of Romans 7. I think he was, but I, I'd just like to ask him that. Uh, but you know, yeah, from time to time these questions come up. But I guess because I've done so much research and study, I guess I've, I've come up with the answers to most things that satisfy me. <laughs> up the back, yeah. Andrew. Yeah. Well, that's loud. Um, <clears throat> my question relates to uh, chapter three, uh, through twenty-two and twenty-five, yep. where he refers to the law as a tutor or a schoolmaster. 
and um, I've, there's been some argument about what that exactly means. It would appear that from your understanding of that's more so to do with an era and epoch and the way that God related to God's people. Others would argue that you should always use the law as a means of bringing people to, to Christ as if to yeah. uh, school them in the law and that will convict them of their sins. Yeah. What's your thoughts? The word that's used in Greek is paidagogos, which means someone who leads a child. And it was a technical term that was used for slaves who took children to school. And their task was to make sure the kids got there on time and got into class, and then they'd pick them up at the end. So it's got that idea of leading people to um, the place where they need to go to learn. And so I think the idea is that the law had a teaching function, um, but um, it was, um, if you'd like to press the image, it's, it's really... Um, a provision of God for the, the period of childhood, of immaturity, uh, but now he's saying that in Christ you've come to the, uh, the fullness of knowledge and, and understanding of God and the Gospel, therefore you don't need anybody to lead you any further in this way. Uh, you don't need any slave um, you know, uh, taking charge of you. So it's got that idea that the law has a positive function, but in the end it's, 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 it's a function to lead you to a true knowledge of God, but yes, to lead you to Christ. Uh, Paul has some very negative things to say about the law, but he also has a positive uh, perspective there. So, and it was all just part of um, the stages in God's dealing with humanity. And of course we have to realise, and you've only got to read the Old Testament law to, to, for this to become clear, that it had to go. It had to go because we would all have to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. Now that would be great business for Qantas. No more problems at Qantas. But you can see the problem. I mean, how can, we, how can all the Christians in the world go up to Jerusalem every year for three times a year? Um, you've got all the laws in the Old Testament about agriculture and, and, and so on and so on, um, and the food laws and everything. It, it all had to go because it was a temporary provision for Israel as a nation uh, at a certain stage in God's dealings with humanity. But now the Gospel is, is, is for everyone by faith and therefore the law steps into the past. So that, that's the sort of picture that Paul is, is giving. But it doesn't mean to say we haven't got things to learn from the law. Of course, there are wonderful um, perspectives. Um, a friend of mine has just written a book on Paul and the law. Um, it's very much stressing the idea that the law provides us with wisdom, wisdom for living, um, wisdom about uh, morality, wisdom about social relationships, politics, all sorts of things. But we're not under the law as a set of commandments that we have to, to keep every uh, law that's in the book. We rather look to it for wisdom about, about godly living. Okay, Gerald's got one. If the letters of Galatians was one of the first of the written uh, New Testament documents, how did the church maintain unity in the absence of written documents, why didn't they fragment on, you know, far more superficial issues than the one that you know Paul is addressing now? Yeah. Um, well, it seems like um, there were, of course, other letters that were written that were not um, recorded in the New Testament, and that letters were um, were going around pretty quickly. Um, for example, Paul wrote to the Laodiceans. He mentions in Colossians, but we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. Um, but the other thing was that when Paul and the others started to write they pretty quickly got copied and passed around so that by the turn of the century um, Christians um, in 
you know, the sort of Mediterranean area, we're reading most of the 13 epistles of Paul and other documents. We have evidence of that. So that they pretty quickly had the New Testament as a collection of uh, documents explaining the Gospel. And then, of course, the Gospels were written. Uh, prior to that, probably there was a lot of material circulating in oral forms or in, 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 sh- in shorter documents, you know, collections of the sayings of Jesus and things like that. Uh, but as the New Testament came to, to final form, maybe around about 80 AD, um, you've, you've got the documents there that are sufficient to hold everybody together in the truth. Um, but, uh, but as you suggest, in that interim stage where these documents are being written, um, it's, it must have been much more difficult to hold people together. And that's where the great figures of the apostles were so important that they, that they wrote to the churches that were under their control to urge them to, to maintain the faith that had been given to them in the first place. But the more it was written down, the more this could be circulated and the more the people could be held to these written documents as the, um, as the New Covenant um, documents. I think we've got time for one more. Here we go, Marilyn. Speak into the mic, please. <laughs> Thanks for your talk. I just love what you said at the end just about the spirit and you made a comment that the spirit keeps us hoping, Mm. fixed on the future. How does the spirit do that, do you think? Well, I I think that's a very interesting question. How does God work on us psychologically? Mm. (laughs) And I think that um, we've got to keep on coming back to the gospel that God um, impresses upon our minds the truth of the gospel and we begin to see by the Spirit's direction more and more the implications of the Gospel in terms of our, of our relationships and um, if, we, if, we, uh, if we're suffering sickness or persecution uh, what it means to be a Christian in that context and if we get older uh, we think well you know, how much more life have I got to live what's my future and the Gospel keeps on telling me you've got an amazing future in Christ so I believe that the, the Spirit keeps working the gospel implications in our minds and hearts um, as we as we uh, face temptation and persecution and struggle, and we come to um, appreciate more of the implications of the gospel um, in all the aspects of our life. So it's basically the spirit working through our minds, I believe, um, helping us to apply the gospel to, to every area of our our life and relationships. Which is one of the things about you know coming to church. That's one of the reasons why we need to keep reading the Bible, talking Christian things, singing Christian songs, praying together, so that our minds are filled more and more with gospel perspectives and the Spirit can work amongst us to achieve his good purposes. David, I'm going to finish up there. We're 9.30. Can I thank, uh, get us to thank David for coming along tonight? I found it very helpful and... Uh, I'm looking forward to being back here Sunday to begin preaching on the book. Um, And I must say the thing I really appreciated and it's the thing I've often thought about with Galatians is there's so much there on the Holy Spirit and how he helps us in the Christian life and I'm sure that's going to be one of the things we explore in uh, much more depth. So thank you for coming and uh, your assistance in getting us kicked off to look at this great book. Thank you. That's it for tonight and uh, yeah, you can give another clap.